Welcome to the Total Soccer Show's Euro 2020 coverage, day nine. There was a strong showing from Hungary's right wing on the field and in the stands as a slightly laissez-faire France were made to settle for Umpois in Budapest, only drawing with a team that's worse than them. Is it now the time to give them the abuse that England got yesterday? Probably not. Meanwhile, in Munich, Germany rely on Kai and a Portuguese poo-poo platter of own goals in a game that had it all, including a pigeon on the field that did about as much defending as Portugal did. And also, insert platitudes about Spain versus Poland here, as it hasn't happened yet at the time we're recording the intro to this pod. Taylor Rockwell is spending his day in traffic on I-95, fun for him, but we're motoring on with a man who's always in top gear, Joe Lowry. I like the idea of Taylor just choosing to not be on this show to sit on I-95 for the entire day. Uh, it doesn't paint us in the most flattering of lights, but yeah, I don't know, I can see it. I mean, yeah, it's not it's not the greatest pastime to be sitting on sitting on the highway. It's a I I ninety five is quite a road, Joe. Have you ever been on it? I I have not. No, the picture you sent in our group chat did not look appealing. That uh, bumper to bumper traffic. Yeah, it's the spine that kind of runs from New York all the way down to Florida. It's a long road. Um, in, in many senses. I'll leave it there. I'll leave it there. Uh, meanwhile, in Glasgow, we have a man still buzzing from his nation's greatest ever achievement. A nil-nil draw with an average team that leaves the bottom of their Euro group. Great, Ruffin. Uh, you're right. I am celebrating that. I've taken a leaf out of England's book. I found out on Amazon today that there was a DVD of England's performance at the 2018 World Cup. Um, that would have been the one that they, they finished fourth in. Um, but yes, I am absolutely milking this, Ryan. You're 100% correct. You're kind of inferring that getting to the semi-finals of the World Cup isn't an achievement, Graham. Not enough for a DVD. Come on. <laughs> Tell that to Tottenham releasing DVDs of whatever they do oh. anytime. Frankly. <laughs> <laughs> but Graham, you, you sent into our um, into our TSS WhatsApp chat. You were sent some images of yourself last night. Were you rewatching the game at like one a.m. or something? Um, I was, yes. But in my defence, it was on every channel. It was on the B- BBC, and then I turned over to ITV, and they were also showing it. So I think there was a, a desire for people to watch the highlights, and and they're milking the live coverage. But yes, I absolutely uh, did not turn the TV off. That's correct. Did you get anything more from a second viewing, Graham? Um, England were even worse than I thought they were the first time. <laughs> You'd had some cans by that point, of course. Your judgment must have been impaired. That's why, that's why I can only uh, gain from that comment, Graham. Uh, I think, actually, I've seen things clearer with a few cans. Uh, you know how uh, you know alcohol booze brings out the truth in everyone? I think that's what was happening there. Yes, maybe so, maybe so, Graham. I'm not going to contest that at this point. Um, but yesterday, we were blessed with three not-so-great games, and as at the time of recording, we've had two very, very good ones indeed. Why don't we start off, gentlemen, in Budapest, where Hungary drew 1-1 with France. Uh, a pretty wild atmosphere from the hosts once again, uh, making France feel the heat. Uh, temperatures over 90 degrees. There were drinks breaks in this one. There were drinks breaks in the uh, second game as well. Uh, massive point for Hungary here, Joe. Um, for for their team, for their soft fascism, for their homophobia, for all their things. Wonderful for them. Uh, this is their uh-huh. first point um, in the Euros. I won't ask you to comment on the political stuff, Joe, but how about the stuff on the field? It seemed like Hungary had a pretty fast start. They were they were up for it, and they were you know they they were to be taken seriously. They absolutely were. I was really impressed with what Hungary brought to the table. I was impressed with what they brought to the table against Portugal as well in in that game where I thought they were really good for about 80 minutes and then Portugal finally managed to get it together and score a few goals at the end of that game on match day one. 
But Hungary came out in that same 5-3-2 defensive shape. They were compact, but they they don't just defend all the time. They will play with the ball some, and they did play with the ball some in this game against France. They were able to play through France's 4-3-3 in moments. Then they ran into that compact French defense in, in, the, in the final third, and that was much more challenging for them to break through. But I, I like what this team brings. I think they play that 5-3-2 block maybe better than any other team in this tournament, and they didn't. I mean, clearly they were at a talent disadvantage, right? But they didn't just melt at any French attack. They really were strong. They compressed space. They were compact defensively. And then, yeah, they did some of that nice stuff with the ball and scored a goal in first half stoppage time. It was a really strong performance from Hungary. It really was, Graham. Uh, Atia Fiola uh, getting the goal there, the left wing back for Hungary, uh, who, of course, we all know plays for MOL, Fehevar, FC, uh, those guys. Um, yes. you were the, I believe you did a Hungary preview. Can you give us a good 10 or 15 minutes on that club <laughs> and him, please? Um, yes. Just on another podcast, you're going to need to give me some time on that one. It's a separate show. Yeah, yeah, we'll do that as a spinoff. Fair enough. But, uh, but an impressive one, Graham. As you say, uh, as, uh, as Joe said, they were in the 5 through 2 and seemed to, seemed to do a pretty good job of it. Yeah, and, and they took their opportunity. Joe's absolutely right. They, they, they struggled a little bit from an at- attacking sense against the compact uh, French, def- French defence. But the one opportunity that they, they got against that French defence, when uh, Pavard gets pulled slightly out of position, gets caught high up, yeah. and Fuller really takes advantage of it, it really felt like that was their only chance to get in behind France. I did fear after that whether Deschamps was going to go full Deschamps and just and just uh, go even more compact because uh, they'd given up one chance and obviously Hungary scored. But the best thing about that goal was obviously the celebration uh, where Fiola goes over to the stand and there's a woman. I don't know if she's uh, if the, if the the Ferenc Puskas Arena is selling workspace. You know, I know that a lot of places have been have done that in the pandemic and people working from home and so on, but. That there's a woman at a desk at the side of the pitch. Seeming, she was just doing her work, minding her own business, and then Fiola comes over, and the whole country of Hungary lands on top of this desk. And it's one of my favourite moments of the tournament so far. This woman who, I'm not even entirely sure she's paying attention to the match. She seems to be <laughs> really surprised to see a footballer celebrating a goal right in front of her all of a sudden. But her reaction was uh, just fantastic. Yeah, I looked into it, Graham. It's actually a WeWork space. They've been hiring it out. Um, she, she was just an accountant. And, and uh, I hope she had insurance on that laptop is all I can say. But yeah, that was a, a certainly an unusual celebration. Why, why, did the, why did he jump over at that specific point as well? He could have run closer to the fans at a different part of the stadium. I don't know. It was very strange. Very strange indeed. But Joe... Um, this this felt to me like a game that vindicates the expansion of the format. It, the, the Hungry very much weren't here to make up the numbers. They've done they've accounted for themselves very well in Group F, albeit they're they're looking pretty doomed at this point. Yeah, I mean it's fun to get to see teams that we wouldn't normally see maybe in a tournament like this when it had 16 teams. It's fun to get to see Finland at their first ever major tournament. It's fun to see North Macedonia. It's fun to see a team like Hungary in this in this competition. My my issue with the expanded format is, maybe it's not an issue, but it feels like we're playing a lot of games to get rid of eight teams, right? It feels like we're playing a lot of soccer to just chop off a very small percentage of the overall teams of this competition. But man, to have this expanded tournament, there is quality in Europe in a lot of these countries that maybe 
you you wouldn't necessarily associate with having a strong soccer program or having a, a lot of talent. Hungary has talent, and they're they're without their best player in Shobaslai for this tournament, and their their number nine goes out in the first half. And there's so many things working against them here, but we can still see that they have the quality and the tactical approach to come out there and give the most talented team in global soccer a game, and that's that's fun. Well, on that note, let's talk about France. Graham, I said in jest in the intro that should we give France the same pelters that we gave England for sort of not, you know, not performing as well as they should against a perceived lesser opponent. What are your thoughts on that take? Because uh, there, there is a school of thought that France were kind of almost playing for a, a point in the same way that England were. Um, I'm not entirely sure I, I saw that. I, I, do, I do have complaints about... Some of the selection that, that Deschamps make, made, I'm not entirely sure why. Well, for starters, I'm not entirely sure if there's a need for Rabiot to start this game. And then, but as the game progresses, it becomes really apparent to me that he doesn't need to be in there. And then Corentin Tolisso comes on and there's been a bit of a, I was reading quite a bit about this in the French press this morning, um, during my, my, uh, my Eurosport shift, which requires me to look at all the, the European press. And there's a bit of a, a clamour among French fans and the French media for Toliso to start games. They think he um, balances that midfield out a little bit better in, in more of an attacking sense, maybe having Rabiot in there uh, against um, teams, who, higher calibre teams who are maybe going to seize more of the ball. And it's not the onus isn't on France to attack as much and control games maybe like the the game against Germany where Rabiot actually did okay but in this match I think a lot of people think Tolisso should be starting and and I kind of saw that from the cameo that he made off off the bench I did think France were pushing for 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 a second goal after the equalized I did feel that they also had chances Benzema had chances Mbappe had chances in the first half so I, I did see I didn't see the 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 lifelessness in this France performance that I saw from England last night, to be frank. Um, and also, I, I just think, I just think with England, we don't have the evidence to back up that this is what they do. Whereas with France, we do have that evidence. And, you know, they were pretty unconvincing in the group stage of the, of the last World Cup. They draw against Denmark in that last World Cup. I think there's also a game against Australia, maybe their first game where they win 1-0 with a, a very late goal. So mm-hmm. we've kind of got evidence that this is a little, this is kind of par for the course for France. Whereas with England that we don't, as I say, we don't have that sort of, that evidence to base an opinion on. I think it's a really interesting question, Ryan, that you know, should we be talking about France in the same way that we talked about England? I've been thinking about that, actually, since that England performance yesterday, because my biggest takeaway from that England game is that they were a little bit dull. They were a little bit boring. They have all this attacking talent, and yet we don't really see that talent being let loose in well, certain ways. French. And, and And Gareth, well, it is. It, right. There are similarities here. Gareth Southgate, though, is setting up that England team to possess. They're in this more expansive structure. They do have a couple of patterns. They play this 4-3-3, and, and you think... Okay, this team is here to break the other team down, and yet they don't really. They don't create an overwhelming number of chances. I think, I think the one thing that Didier Deschamps has in his favor here in this comparison is that he's kind of never really gone out there to play this expansive style of soccer. And yes, in, in a game like this against Hungary, they have a ton of possession. But that's not that's not really who they are. They're in this tournament to make it to the knockout rounds, play against teams that are willing to be more expansive, and then France is going to sit deeper and attack in transition. So for me, there's almost a it's a very slight nuanced distinction, 
But there is a distinction. England are playing with the ball, but they're not really doing anything with it. France are kind of just buying time until they come up against another team like Germany uh, that will let them sit deep and then attack. And then we're going to see Mbappe run in behind, which he still managed to do some in this game and look good. So I think there are a lot of similarities here, but I'm inclined to say France maybe gets a pass for being a little bit, a little bit boring, a little bit dull in an attack compared to England. Fair enough. Joe, what about the um, the system uh, or the formation, I should say, that France were using? Did it start as a 4-3-3 and it sort of ended more of a, a 4-2-3-1? No, that, I think that's spot on, Ryan. It was, again, that 4-3-3 that we saw against Germany with Griezmann on the right, Mbappe on the left, and Benzema as the nine. And then in the second half, it changed, and we saw Pogba next to Kante deeper in midfield when Dembele, come, uh, Dembele comes on midway through the second half. And I, I like that shape from France, and I think it's a good we're chasing the game kind of shape because you still have midfield solidity with Pogba and Kante and you kind of always have midfield solidity when you have N'Golo Kante. And then you also get Dembele who was flawed in this game, but just electric as well, right? That's the, that's the nature of the Osman Dembele. The most Osman Dembele performance there has ever been. A moment of, yeah. of brilliance when he comes on that almost results in a goal, then some sloppy errors, and then he gets subbed off with an injury. Yeah. <laughs> that's like Osman Dembele in a nutshell. It absolutely was, and I think the shape works as long as you can handle some of that erratic behavior from Dembele in terms of how he plays. But it, it's a it's a wrinkle that Deschamps has, and we've seen him use that four two three one before. We've seen him use a four four two diamond. Now the four three three. I'm not sold on the four three three from a defensive perspective against a more high powered attacking team, but I, I think some of the changes in shape were fitting and, and actually worked out for France in this game. Well, Graham, why don't we talk about um, one of uh, Dembele's um, domestic. Um, teammates, Anton Gresmian, who obviously got the goal here, uh, benefiting from some nice Route 1 play there and uh, giving us a lovely dance move in celebration <laughs> as well. Uh, what, did you, what did you make of him? It seemed like he has a, a little bit of a different role here than he does with Barcelona. Maybe he's not inhibited as much by sharing the field with Leo Messi. He seems to have a more expansive, a freer role in that sort of loose number 10 position. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've actually got Griezmann down in my notes um, for this match because of the reasons that you, you explained there. He has a, a much sort of freer role for France. Yes, he if, if you were to plot him on a on a you know a tactic sheet, he does start as the the sort of number ten or the secondary forward behind uh, Benzema. But Deschamps very much gives him the the license to to drift left and right and deep and in behind. And basically, he he's just the one who sort of links everything together and the role he plays for Barcelona is for France I should say is very different to the one that he plays for Barcelona it's much closer to the role that he played for Atletico Madrid where obviously he had to fit into quite a, a rigid a rigid tactical structure under under, under Diego Simeone and I, I don't think Deschamps' system is quite at that level but it, you know there's similarities there in that Deschamps likes to keep things compact and Griezmann's maybe the one player who doesn't have to adhere a lot to that but equally he he puts in a, a power of defensive work as well you know that's why he's he's also in the team as he, he he doesn't just buzz around in the attacking areas he's he's tracking back he's he's uh, helping teammates out so yeah I think he he very much looks more like Antoine Griezmann for France than he does for for Barcelona but I, I have to say in, in general I think I was, I'm a little bit more positive on this France performance than than maybe the two of you guys are I I, I did see from Griezmann and, and from Mbappe you know Mbappe had um, uh, six shots in this game he's never had more in a single game for France um, and, and so I, I did see 
from Mbappe and Griezmann and Benzema, even though things weren't in- clicking entirely, and the goal comes from Lloris just deciding, I've had enough of uh, <laughs> France <laughs> playing the ball and, and you know trying to create something through midfield. I'm just going to launch a bomb at Kylian Mbappe <laughs> and see what he does. See what he does with it, and he dealt very well with it. He diffused it very well and and obviously creates the goal. But uh, yeah, I think um, France will need to show a bit more, show a bit more cutting edge later in the tournament, but. As I say, given the evidence we've got of them in previous tournaments, I, I, I fancy them to do that. Well, they might not have to show that much more cutting edge in their third game, Graham. They be, they're going to Budapest to play Portugal in that third game. Uh, Portugal, who put an interesting performance in against Germany. This one, I would say, Portugal against Germany, this is where 4-2 winners were Germany. Uh, Portugal were well and truly man-shafted, I think we can safely <laughs> say here. This was a brilliant game. Uh, lots of attacking soccer on display, Joe. Loads of interplay from the Germans. Uh, a pigeon, as I mentioned, bouncing around on the field and not wanting to leave. Uh, <laughs> this, this game had everything. It really did. This was, I think, my favorite game of the tournament so far, or certainly very close to the top of that list. Germany were incredibly fun to watch, and Portugal made it easier for them in a lot of ways that we can talk about. But but man, the way that Germany came out and created chances from the start of this game, because it's easy to think Portugal get that opening goal on a great counterattack, on a textbook counterattack. It's easy to think, man, Germany didn't start well, and then eventually they found the game around you know the 30th minute or whatever. That was not the case. Germany came out swinging. They were applying pressure on Portugal's defensive block, and they created chances and chances and chances. Not all of those chances resulted in shots, but they looked dangerous in the attack in a way that they really didn't look dangerous against France, and I, man, I just enjoyed watching them. I was getting worried, Graham, at the start, because as Joe said, they did come out swinging, and they were pumping balls into the box, but it was like, no one was there to get them. And then yeah. they ended up basically scoring the same goal at least three times by getting the ball right into the mixer. Yeah, I mean, I this, this was a strange start to the game for me because I, and for the first 30 minutes, it felt like even though Germany were having a lot of the attack and play and obviously Portugal score their their goal to go 1-0 up with pretty much the the first attack they've had in the whole game. So it, it was very much German pressure from the beginning, but it felt like they were trying to force things through the middle quite a lot. And then about 30 minutes in, they they they, they noticed this ability to switch a diagonal ball, primarily to, to Robin Gosens on the left, but also to Kimmich on, on the right. And it was like that that just became their go-to play for the whole match. And with good reason, because the the majority of the chances they created and the goals that they scored came from this overload of just having... To to put it in simplistic terms, um, the 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 way that Germany were getting five attackers forward with the with the full fullbacks, the wing backs, was basically meaning that they had a five on four against the Portuguese defence every single time. And poor Nelson Semedo, as much as he had a poor game individually, he he was just getting pulled all over the place and 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 getting pulled yeah. into the centre and then leaving Gosens with so much space on the left side. And as I say, while he did have an individually poor game. You, you do kind of wonder what he was supposed to do. And when, when Fernando Santos made the changes for, uh, for Portugal, which I think was to, to put on Renato Sanchez, I think it was. I'm just looking back through yeah, my notes. Right. Yeah, yeah. To put on Renato Sanchez, that the, the problem wasn't really for me anyway. It wasn't a personnel problem. It was a system problem. And so you basically, as well as, uh, Renato Sanchez played, in an attacking sense, he he hits the the post with a with an absolute thunderous strike in the second half, and I think he will probably start the next game for Portugal. From a from a defensive sense, it it didn't really do anything for Portugal, and um, yeah, the, I think Santos has a lot to think about after this one. But Germany, they they really did recognise where the weaknesses were and where their where their strengths were, and and really went after them. 
Yeah, Joe, that probably leads to what you mentioned there, the way that Portugal made this easy for the Germans. Uh, I was told that, you know, Diaz and Pepe were quite good in the back. Uh, you know, Semedo's okay, Guerrero's okay. What, what, what happened here? Yeah, so there were individual breakdowns that we can, we can start there. Ruben Diaz has the own goal for the first goal for Germany. And that comes from just letting Kai Havertz run right across his face and, and Havertz is able to get on the ball and then it, it, it goes into the goal. That's a problem. And then there were other moments in this game where Rafael Guerrero or Daniel Pereira or William Carvalho, they, they weren't pressuring the ball fast enough and just a, a lot of individual defensive errors leading to breakdowns. But even we can go out one layer more. And, and Graham, I think you analyzed this really well a lot of the attacking play for Germany started on that right side, and then they moved the ball over to the left side, where they oftentimes were just pulling Nelson Semedo wherever Germany Germany was pulling him, wherever they wanted him to go. All four goals for Germany were uh, were featuring Robin Gosens, their left wing back, who would push really high and really wide. And Semedo, then you, you think, okay, he's going to step out to deal with Robin Gosens. But he didn't, and really he couldn't, because Germany almost always had either Serge Gnabry or Kai Havertz pinning Nelson Semedo inside. So Semedo was in this really difficult 2v1. Do I stay inside and leave Gnabry or Havertz open, or do I stay outside? It's it's a nightmare, right? It's an absolute nightmare. And all four goals featured that exact same overload. Portugal kind of half-heartedly tried to fix it with Fernando Santos. They had Bernardo Silva dropping back to almost play as a wingback in brief moments, but he stepped forward on Germany's second goal and wasn't really a defensive factor. Later, Rafa Silva tries to defend on the backside, and he gets burned for Gosen's actual goal by just not defending in that moment. Portugal had the same thing happen to them basically four times. They never really adjusted, and, and that's a problem, right? It looked like in this game... Portugal came in ready to defend. From the opening moments, they high-pressed maybe once or twice in the first 5-10 minutes, but they came in, they sat deep in a 4-4-2 or a 4-5-1 in their own half. You think, okay, this team is defensively resolute. They had a pretty conservative midfield and numbers behind the ball. But then Germany get on the ball in the early stages of this game, and it became very clear that Portugal was not actually ready to defend. On a macro level, they looked like they were, but on a micro level, they failed to execute the, the little things, the little but really important things that a defensive team, quote-unquote defensive team, needs to execute. It was it was not a good performance from them and not uh, really lacked tactical adjustments in-game from Fernando Santos. Yeah, I think that was my biggest takeaway for Portugal in that, as you say, they, they got constantly beaten by the same goal. And uh, Fernando Santos is was thought okay Renato Sanchez came on in the first game and it really helped us I'll just do that maybe that will fix things and uh didn't really happen for them Graham with with Robin Gosens obviously a star of this game as as Joe said involved in all four four goals and he had that really nice goal ruled out for uh through VAR as well at the start um was it that he was spectacular and he is a very good left-sided player of course or could it have been any German player exposing the problems that Portugal had it with um, do you know, I really hate when talking heads say a bit of both <laughs> when they're asked questions <laughs> like that, but I feel like I have to go down that route for this one. Um, obviously, okay. Gosens is very good at playing that role. He plays that role well for, for you know, at club level. Um, and so maybe it's maybe not a case of just anyone could have, could have done it, but, um, I think the, his success 
was due in large part to the system and the mismatch in systems between Germany and 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 Portugal. Um, he was timing his he was timing his runs really well. I think that was a, was a was a big part of it. I mean, I can't really ever recall him getting called for for offside or anything like that. You know, late runs into the box. He, I think, one of the things that Gosens did that was a difference for me from the first game uh, that Germany played against France was he he wasn't really trying to be too precise. Um, and what I mean by that was. You know, the equaliser for Germany comes from Gosens basically getting into a dangerous, dangerous area and putting the ball into another dangerous area. And, and that the goal comes from that. Whereas I felt like Germany against France were, were maybe looking for a slightly too intricate goal. They were, you know, it was, it, they were trying to play through France a little bit too much. Where I feel like Gosens embodied more of an imprecise, but much more effective approach to this game. Uh, the, the story going around with Gosens, uh, have you seen this thing about him asking to swap shirts with Ronaldo previously? I presume this was in a league game. Uh, oh, he I said, did see this, yeah. I asked Cristiano, can I have your shirt? He didn't even look at me. He just said, no, I was completely blushed and ashamed. I went away and felt small. Who feels small today, huh? <laughs> well, I mean, Ronaldo <laughs> did play pretty well. He did, <laughs> uh, to be he, fair. Yeah, he probably doesn't care about Portugal, you know, losing. He he had a good game and scored scored a good goal and an assist. I actually, Richard Jolly tweeted out that since the semi-finals of Euro 2004, Cristiano Ronaldo has more goals in the Euros than England. So there you go, Ryan Bailey. <laughs> Thank you for bringing it full circle, Graham. I appreciate that. Um, so that was that was uh, probably. Are we agreed that was maybe the most entertaining game of the tournament? I think you said that, Joe. Do you, are you with that, Graham? Yeah, I think so. I think that was probably the, the game that I've enjoyed most. Um, every, everything, everything was kind of in place. I, I, I even like this this uh, this stadium and the team and the and the teams were wearing the right kits and things like that. And also Greenpeace didn't dive bomb the game before kickoff, so that was good of them. Um, but yeah, I thought this was enjoyable. It was indeed. And I've said more than, more than enough about the political situation uh, in, in that particular area, so I won't do any more of that. I will ask though, gents, this is Group F now. Everyone's played two games. We've got Hungary at the bottom with one point, Portugal and Germany both with three points, France at the top with four. Uh, I think it's fairly it seems reasonably clear that the top three at the moment are going to go through with uh, Hungary having to play Germany in their final game, although it's not a given. But um, maybe I'll pose this to you, Joe. Of those three teams, France, Germany and Portugal, who goes furthest, you think? And obviously there's, there are permutations. It depends who faces who in the knockouts. But who, okay, who, who's the stronger, who's strongest looking right now? Let's go with that. Oh, man. Uh, a, <laughs> big, a big part of me wants to say Germany, even though I know they lost to France in that first game and there were some flaws in that performance. But... But they were they were good in that game, even though they lose. I, I'm still gonna say France. I'm not sold about how they actually use the ball to create goal scoring opportunities in possession. But like I said before, I think once they get into the knockout rounds, that might not matter as much depending on their opponent. And they're just stacked, man. This team is 10% tactics and 90% vibes and individual talent. <laughs> and the individual talent and vibes that they have are immaculate. It's really hard for me to bet against that, even though kind of the logical side of my brain wants to say Germany. So anyway, I'm going France. So yeah, Joe says they're Real Madrid, 10% tactics and 90% <laughs> yeah, vibes. Um, how about you, Graham? 
Yeah, I, I'll have to go with France. Just I, I have I know Germany were excellent today, and and they kind of masked their weaknesses really well by um, adopting a very specific ploy, as we've spoken about. But I just worry about the maybe the lack of athleticism in their central midfield when uh, Yoyolo seems to be intent on using a, a midfield two of of Kroos and, and Gundogan, who are both excellent players. But I just worry that they might get overwhelmed in the center of the pitch, of the pitch against teams that can uh, kind of defend against them and not allow Robin Gosens the freedom of the whole pitch. Well, it sounds like we're backing France to go to furthest here, but there's still plenty of love for Love's Germany here. We'll see how this group shakes out. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, in the meantime, gents, one more game to cover today. We've got Spain versus Poland. When I click my fingers, we're going to jump ahead in time, just us three, and we will have watched that game. Here we go. And what a convenient edit point that was. Spain versus Poland then. Let's get to it. 1-1 in Seville this one was. By the way, Graham Ruffin, how do you feel about the colour of the seats in Seville again? Was this the one where you didn't like the seats? Uh, yes, this is in the in Seville's Olympic Stadium, which, um, much like Baku, never hosted an Olympics. Um, but yes, the, fl- the flesh colour seats in Seville are not to my taste at all. I don't understand the use of this stadium. Uh, Seville has two other stadiums that could be used for this. Which nice are great. Yeah, and Spain has many others. And the field is, the actual quality of the grass looks terrible on this field. So I don't know quite, I, I don't understand the reasons this field is being used. And it wasn't used to great effect by the Spanish, that's for sure. As I say, this one finishing 1-1. Avaro Morata staying onside for a moment, or trying his best to be offside, I suppose, for the goal that he got. And Robert Lewandowski getting the equaliser with a header. Uh, Joe, Spain are like me in my late 30s, not very good at taking <laughs> shots. Um, I saw I saw that tweet. <laughs> thank you very much. I thought I'd repeat it here. I'd ne- never never too good to use material <laughs> twice. Um, pretty underwhelming stuff from Spain, though, wasn't it? Particularly in the final third. It really was, and I didn't think it was going to because we came off of that game, Spain versus Sweden, which obviously ended in a nil nil draw. And I thought, man, Spain created chances to win that game. And and I thought they had done enough that they were going to come into this game with some real attacking momentum and that they were going to look very capable of breaking Poland down. That wasn't the case. They came out in a 4-3-3, very similar personnel. They had Gerard Moreno over Fernando Torres as that right winger in the 4-3-3, but everything else was the same. And they didn't have it today. They didn't have the quickness on the ball. They didn't have the off-ball movements. They they were unable to break down Poland's really compact 5-3-2-5-3-1-1 block. Credit to Poland for how they defended and how they took advantage of opportunities to get forward. And, and really, they started both halves aggressively, which worked out very well for them in the second half, getting that goal from Robert Lewandowski. But a hugely disappointing performance from Spain. The XG in this game very much flatters them. They, they racked up significantly more chances and a higher XG than Poland. But they really didn't play all that well at all. They did not. Uh, Graham, you watch a lot of Spanish soccer. Uh, you probably follow these uh, players uh, um, probably more closely than Joe and I. What did you make of this one? It seemed very conservative, obviously. Um, a lot of possession, dominating for large parts, but just no cutting edge in the final third. Absolutely, I, and and I didn't really expect that because as soon as the I saw the team and Jared Moreno's in there, and not just Jared Moreno, I did expect Moreno to to play this game, but I expected him to come in as the replacement for Morata. I didn't expect him to come in alongside them, and so right from the start, you're thinking, okay, this is going to be a, a, a lot more attacking intent from Spain and I'm a massive fan of Jerry Moreno I think he is the, the sort of striker normally the sort of striker that Spain have been lacking or were lacking in their first game you know someone who actually knows where the the back of the net is which sometimes uh, poor old Alvaro Morata 
doesn't. Um, the number of chances and just a lot of Morata's play is very erratic and um, one of the most remarkable things, I think it was Sid Lowe on Twitter pointed out that he was wearing a long a long sleeve shirt in Seville in June. Um, <laughs> which, I don't know if that's having an effect on his performance or something like that. But um, yeah, the, the strange thing was obviously when Moreno was out on the right side, as Joe referenced there. And, and so I think that right side is a bit of a puzzle for Spain, to be honest, because you could push Lorente into midfield where he is maybe more... Um, comfortable, I should say Lorente is playing at right back for Spain at the moment, so you could push him into central midfield, that would change a lot though Gerard Moreno works to a certain extent ahead of Loreno, but the, those, the, uh, sorry, um, Lorente but those two don't offer a lot of width, if you want width then maybe Adama Traore or Ferran Torres really works ahead they're the only two that really works ahead of uh, Marcos Laurentiis and but are either really good enough at this point I would actually say Adama Traore has to be worth a shot at least off the bench in the final game against Slovakia I totally understand why people have their reservations about Adama Traore his, his final product isn't really normally good enough but at least he he makes something happen he runs at people he commits defenders and if, if he's not the one that gets through then maybe someone else will get through Spain have got to try something different here because this isn't working for Manrique. Some of his, his in-game uh, management as well, his subs were really strange. I'm not entirely sure what Sarabia's doing in this in this in this squad, to be honest, let alone this team. I mean that spot to me should be I Iago Aspas um should should have that, that spot in the in the team. He's been brought off the bench in the last two games as Spain looked for a, a goal. I don't know what he offers in this side. And then Spain finished this game without a designated striker on the pitch as they're searching for a goal I mean it was it was just all very and probably rambled a little bit there to be honest but that just reflects how muddled I thought this performance was from Spain it was curious yeah to go back to your point about Morata and his shirt sleeves by the way I'm, I'm, I'm picking on the important stuff here Graham um, has he ever <laughs> worn short sleeves because I know like David Beckham would always wear long sleeves no matter where he played in, in summer tournaments and whatnot is Murata one of those where he only ever wears long sleeves maybe now that I think of it yeah I, I can only picture him in long sleeves Same. but the, there, there has to be mitigating circumstances like Seville <laughs> in the middle of the summer Perhaps so. Uh, to, to make a more serious point, Graham, you talked about maybe Aspas having a place in the team, maybe Traore. What else can Spain do besides maybe a couple of changes in personnel? Because as you say, they do have to shake this up. Yeah, that. well, I, I, I'm a little bit um, I'm short of answers, to be honest, on what else they can try. I, I, I think a lot of it is just they're, just, they're just way too safe. And I think a lot of the time the runs are being made, but the number of times, particularly on that right side where... Uh, an overlapping, not sorry, not an overlapping run, a, a diagonal run in behind was being made from left to right, and yet the ball was being recycled back into midfield, and that's that's fine. Like I don't mind, I don't mind that. Um, just at some point, you need to take a risk. So I, 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 these players that that Luis Enrique has, they a lot of them are risk takers. I mean, Ferran Torres is a risk taker. Oyathabal, who came off the bench, is a is a risk taker. Um, you know, Pedri for Barcelona with that connection with Alba, I'd say Alba's a risk taker down the left side. And that, as I say, that connection with Pedri and Alba should give Spain some sort of way of of attacking an opponent. But I, and I, I don't really know what's going on because Luis Enrique, I've, I'm a big fan of his as a coach as well, going back to his Barcelona days. So it's it's just all very. I am. You might be able to tell. I'm struggling to get my head around it a little bit, to be honest. I, I, it's been a really strange and you have to say disappointing tournament from Spain so far. 
Definitely so. Um, Joe, can we paint any positives here? I think Pedri was uh, uh, had another good game here, didn't he? Sort of seemed to be do- having a lot of contribution from midfield. I enjoy Pedri a ton. He looks like he's just so slight out there, right? He looks like just this tiny player, but he he embodies this the Spanish Pelagol Spanish. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> He embodies the kind of classic technical Spanish midfielder, small, not extremely athletic in the traditional American, I'm going to jump high and run really fast, really quickly kind of way. He's athletic in his own way and in a way that lends itself to soccer. But I really like what he brings at that left central midfield spot, dropping in to the left back spot to allow Jordi Alba to push up in possession. And then those guys can have this little fluid three-man game with Danny Olmo on that left side. I enjoy him a lot. I also, I also have enjoyed Rodri. In these last couple of games, less for what he brings in possession because he doesn't have to do a whole lot. He more circulates from side to side, doesn't have to be super aggressive or progressive with his passing. But I like how he covers when Spain are counterpressing. And we saw it, I think, more against Sweden, but also again in this game where after Spain lose the ball, they press really aggressively. They try to win it back. And Rodri is the pivotal player in a lot of those counterpressing moments because he's looking over his shoulder. He's checking to the left and checking to the right to see where Poland's runners are. And he, he steps across to cover passing angles and he'll cut out those passes if the ball does come to him. I, I really like what he brings in that number six spot. But really, Spain lacked creativity in this game. And I don't have a ton of positives on that front. I think I agree with Graham. The, the personnel is a little bit questionable um, it, chances that maybe should have been taken that weren't, but still not exactly a, a wealth of chances being created. So we can find little positives, but macro wise, not a lot from me. Graham, how about Poland then? Um, I think we were a bit down on them after their first game, understandably so, and sort of what they were doing with their formation and whatnot. They looked pretty confident from the outset here, didn't they? They had a pretty good uh, chance to equalize before the break as well. And um, they just looked much more confident, I thought, is, is my takeaway here. And if you look at the Group E standings right now, Graham, Sweden at the top, Slovakia second, Spain third, uh, Poland Poland in fourth, uh, now with their, with their point on the board, that's... Looks like it's upside down to what we were expecting maybe yeah. at this point. So, um, so, so some thoughts on Poland, Graham. Yeah, I think from the start they were they were just quite a bit higher than maybe I was expecting them. I mean, I, I didn't expect them to be a Sweden, but I, they were certainly quite a bit higher than I expected. A, a little bit, um, their their high press was 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 more intense than I expected, and and this wasn't a. You know, this I, I this wasn't a defensive performance from Poland, and and yes, the outcome may have been the same as as Sweden in that they took they took us a point off Spain, but I did feel like they were taking some risks. I mean, Lewandowski, um, you know, should have had more than than one goal tonight. There's that that chance which he fires straight at Unai Simon, which, um, given the who he is, you would expect him to put that in in the back of the net, and and there were a few other chances as well. Um, it was it the same. They had the they had the post right. That wasn't the same chance. That was a different chance. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So that that just illustrates that that they did have a number of chances to find the back of the net. But um, yeah, I, th- I think at the end you saw Poland kind of in the huddle. Um, they really, but they, they, I I actually when I saw them in that huddle, um, this is obviously just my perspective. It rem- it reminded me of sort of Scotland and that they've got the they've got the point from the game that they didn't expect to get a point from after a poor result against a team they probably expected to beat in the first fixture and now it's kind of all on the line for the last fixture so this this group is maybe the most interesting in terms of the outcome if I mean Spain can go out right can't they it feels if they lose their final game they'll be out yeah so I think 
they, they're maybe the ones there's always a, an upset in every tournament with a big team going out I mean it's very much looking like it could be Spain at the moment they look like good candidates. They've got Slovakia in their final game, Graham, in Seville once again. Um, they're on two points. Sweden and Poland are taking each other on, on at the same time in St. Petersburg. If Poland uh, get a, a good game and beat Sweden and, and Spain can't beat Slovakia, yeah, they're out. So it's, uh, it's a precarious spot that Spain have found themselves in at the moment for sure. Um, Joe, s- some more thoughts on Poland. Um, Kasper Kozlowski came on just before the hour mark, becoming the youngest player at the Euros ever. Uh, a stat from Copper 90s Twitter, when he was born, Where is the Love by Black Eyed Peas was number one in oh, the geez. charts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I looked up the number one when I was born. It was Islands in the Stream by Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. It feels like a lot of years have passed between the Black Eyed Peas and Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. Because they have. <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, Joe, your thoughts on 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 Poland and the way they shaped up here? Um, it was a three four two one, wasn't it? In moments, it's fluid a little bit in how Poland defended. I thought they tweaked a little bit from game one against Slovakia. Obviously, they're missing Krakowiak in midfield, and so that changes things a little bit for them. So as the game went on, I saw them in a little bit more of a of a five three two or a five three one one, and I thought they did a great job of compressing space, but also finding opportunities to attack, right? Sweden in game one for Spain did a great job of compressing space. They did not do a good job of balancing that defensive work with actually causing Spain problems in an attacking sense. And so Poland, even though they sat deep for a lot of this game, they did manage to find the nice in-between point of defending and I just hit my mic there, of defending and attacking. (laughs) They, they have that little, little balance to them. And I think it worked out really well. They, they didn't always step high, but they picked moments to do that. And a lot of the moments I noticed was at the beginning of both of these halves. And they used the momentum from that about the first 10 minutes of the first half and the second half to create some chances. And ultimately the goal comes from that. I thought it was a good tactical change to, to switch up the shape from Sosa. The three central midfielders in front of the back five were very disciplined, very tight, very compact. And that's what you have to do when you play a team like Spain who can use the ball to your detriment, even if we didn't see it in this game. I thought Camille Glick was was really good at, in, in, the, in the middle of the the back three, um, just mm. a good organizer and, and just kind of maintaining that line. And as Joe said, you have to be quite compact against this Spain team, despite the fact that they, um, are not the sharpest in, in, in the final third. But yeah, Glick was one of the players that, that stood out for me. I mean, it's, it's not every center back that gets a song written about him by an Italian rapper, you know? So, so Glick has <laughs> to have some quality to him. He's a rare beast, that is for sure, Joe. Um, Joe, if you, if, what, how do you think these final games are going to shake out? Then, as I said, Slovakia taking on Spain, Sweden taking on Poland. Do you think Spain are in big trouble here? Uh, they certainly didn't help themselves, right? A draw would have been, I mean, a win here would have been, would have been massive for them after a disappointing first game. I think Spain beat Slovakia. I think they're going to be fine. It's not the exciting thing to say, but I, I really do think they have the advantage in that matchup. And I think Sweden will beat Poland and Poland are, are probably going to go out. So I think ultimately Spain will be just fine, even if this game was not so good. Are you with that, Graham? I think that, I think I just about agree with that, but certainly a more valiant effort from Poland than I was expecting after game one. Yeah, um, I am. I'm not sure if I agree. I I just have a really bad. I know this is a very sort of intangible and fuzzy thing to say, and there's not much sort of tactical analysis to base this on. But I I just have a bad feeling about this Spain team. I, I think they 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 just lack a purpose, and they just lack that that killer instinct. And I I I worry for them. I really do. If they get out of the group, I I, I don't expect them to go that far. I have to say. Unless there are major changes, which is, I guess is always 
uh, possible in a tournament. It is indeed. It is indeed. Spain have been known to make major changes in and around the tournament. See 2018 when they <laughs> changed their manager, what, two days before? So you never know. <laughs> these things could happen. And uh, don't worry about intangible and fuzzy, by the way, Graham. That's very much my brand, which I bring uh, to this podcast. So uh, you're good. Um, so that was, uh, that was Spain against Poland, a 1-1 draw, making Group E very interesting for that final round of games, which will be on the 23rd of June and early next week. Let's look ahead to Sunday's games. We've got it's a, the final games of group a first up joe italy against wales in rome uh, italy can go for full points they can get nine points out of this group they're looking pretty pretty good at the moment uh wales probably even if they get the loss here likely to be okay on four points um with that in mind and the relative lack of peril how do you think this one shakes out I think it's going to be shaken up by the managers in terms of how they set up their teams, or at least in terms of the personnel. I think Italy especially will heavily rotate coming into this game because they're already through. Why not change it up and rest some of your more important players for the knockout rounds? That said, I still expect to see the same Italy from a tactical standpoint, right? I still expect to see the same shape. I expect them to have a lot of the ball against Wales, who's a, a team that doesn't always love to control possession. I'm excited for this game. I, I, I've been pleasantly surprised by Wales. I know I had them in the previews that we were doing for this tournament, but I didn't know exactly what to expect from them. The last uh, game for them, we saw Gareth Bale play playmaker in a beautiful way. I'd love to see mm. more of that, and I'd love to see more of Anne Ramsey making those runs in behind. I think this game could be quite a lot of fun, even with some different personnel. Graham, looking forward to seeing the Ramsey and Bales team. Maybe some more Bale corners where he just runs towards the goal straight from the corner. <laughs> well, did you see what Roberto Mancini said about Wales in today's pre-match press conference? He compared them to Stoke. <laughs> so oh, wow. uh, I, I'm not sure how that was received in Wales. Oh, actually, I do know how that was received in Wales. I think <laughs> I think Gareth Bale uh, hit back and uh, with his his comments, basically saying, "Ah, uh, I think you might uh, be surprised by by what sort of team we are." Um, I, I have I'm with Joe. I have been surprised by Wales. I didn't really expect them to be this good at this tournament. I thought their performance against Turkey was excellent, but. The, I don't. I think they have a chance if if Italy rotate here, and I do expect that they will. I, I do wonder if Marco Verratti comes into this into this team for this game. Maybe not to start, but I wonder if he'll he'll get maybe a second half. Um, coming, he's coming back from injury, of course, and hasn't featured at the tournament so far, and is back in training at the moment. So I, I, that's something I'll be keeping an eye out for on the Italy side. The other game uh, tomorrow on Sunday, of course, as well. Switzerland against Turkey in Baku. The battle for third place. I guess this is two winless teams here, Joe. Um, I think we're going to be watching Italy-Wales rather than this one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The quality of Italy-Wales will be better for sure. I am really intrigued to see what's going to happen in the Switzerland-Turkey game, though, because both teams desperately need a win. Turkey have not been impressive at all to this point in the tournament. Switzerland haven't really either, and I thought they had a lot more in them. I think Switzerland's going to win this game and move through as one of those top third-place teams, but this one could go either way, and that's exciting in its own little way. It is. Graham, will you be dual screening for this one? Um, unlikely, <laughs> I would say. I'm not looking forward to watching Turkey again. Uh, no. I'm, I'm looking forward to them going home. <laughs> I was looking through some of the some of the betting markets for this, and it seems like a lot of the, the stats are weighted towards there not being many goals in this. There's been under 2.5 goals scored in five of Turkey's last six Euros games, including the qualifiers that they played to get here so <laughs> I wouldn't count on many goals in this one yeah I think the eye will be drawn to the other match in this group 
It will indeed. And I imagine that's what we'll very much be focusing on tomorrow on Sunday's Total Soccer Show podcast. When Taylor Rockwell will return, he'll maybe get out of the traffic in I-95 by then. We shall see. It's, you know, it's bad traffic. But anyway, uh, Joe Lowry, thank you very much for your time today. As appreciated as always. Thank you, Ryan. And Graham Rutherford, keep on trucking. I will, Ryan. Thank you. Bye! <laughs>